Chapter 6, Part 2 Let us for a moment consider the difficulties which stand in the way. We will suppose that this couple are united by the bonds of a guilty love, and that they have determined to get rid of the man who stands between them. It is a large supposition, for discreet inquiry among servants and others has failed to corroborate it in any way. On the contrary, there is a good deal of evidence that the Douglases were very attached to each other. "'That I am sure cannot be true,' said I, thinking of the beautiful smiling face in the garden. "'Well, at least I gave that impression. However, we will suppose that they are an extraordinarily astute couple, who deceive everyone upon this point and conspire to murder the husband. He happens to be a man over whose head some danger hangs. We have only their word for that.' Holmes looked thoughtful. "'I see, Watson, you are sketching out a theory by which everything they say from the beginning is false. According to your idea, there was never any hidden menace, or secret society, or valley of fear, or boss McSomebody, or anything else. Well, that is a good sweeping generalization. Let us see what that brings us to. They invent this theory to account for the crime.' They then play up the idea by leaving this bicycle in the park as proof of the existence of some outsider. The stain on the windowsill conveys the same idea. So does the card on the body, which might have been prepared in the house. That all fits into your hypothesis, Watson. But now we come on the nasty, angular, uncompromising bits which won't slip into their places. Why a cut-off shotgun of all weapons, and an American one at that? How could they be so sure that the sound of it would not bring someone on to them? It's a mere chance, as it is, that Mrs. Allen did not start out to inquire for the slamming door. Why did your guilty couple do all this, Watson? I confess that I can't explain it. Then again, if a woman and her lover conspire to murder a husband... Are they going to advertise their guilt by ostentatiously removing his wedding ring after his death? Does that strike you as very probable, Watson? No, it does not. And once again, if the thought of leaving a bicycle concealed outside had occurred to you, would it really have seemed worth doing when the dullest detective would naturally say this is an obvious blind, as the bicycle is the first thing which the fugitive needed in order to make his escape? I can conceive of no explanation. And yet, there should be no combination of events for which the wit of man cannot conceive an explanation, simple as a mental exercise, without any assertion that it is true. Let me indicate a possible line of thought. It is, I admit, mere imagination. But how often is imagination the mother of truth? We will suppose that there was a guilty secret a really shameful secret in the life of this man, Douglas. This leads to his murder by someone who is, we will suppose, an avenger, someone from outside. This avenger, for some reason, which I confess I am still at a loss to explain, took the dead man's wedding ring. The vendetta might conceivably date back to the man's first marriage, and the ring be taken for some such reason. Before this avenger got away, Barker and the wife had reached the room, the assassin convinced them that any attempt to arrest him would lead to the publication of some hideous scandal. 
they were converted to this idea and preferred to let him go. For this purpose, they probably lowered the bridge, which can be done quite noiselessly, and then raised it again. He made his escape, and for some reason thought that he could do so more safely on foot than on the bicycle. He therefore left his machine where it would not be discovered until he had got safely away. So far we are within the bounds of possibility, are we not? Well, it is possible, no doubt, said I with some reserve. We have to remember, Watson, that whatever occurred is certainly something very extraordinary. Well, now to continue our suppositious case. The couple, not necessarily a guilty couple, realize after the murderer is gone that they have placed themselves in a position in which it may be difficult for them to prove that they did not themselves either do the deed or convive at it. They rapidly and rather clumsily met the situation. The mark was put by Barker's blood-stained slipper upon the windowsill to suggest how the fugitive got away. They obviously were the two who must have heard the sound of the gun, so they gave the alarm exactly as they would have done, but a good half hour after the event. And how do you propose to prove all this? Well, if there were an outsider, he may be traced and taken. That would be the most effective of all proofs. But if not, well, the resources of science are far from being exhausted, I think that an evening alone in that study would help me much. An evening alone? I propose to go up there presently. I have arranged it with the estimable Ames, who is by no means wholehearted about Barker. I shall sit in that room and see if its atmosphere brings me inspiration. You smile, friend Watson. Well, we shall see. By the way, you have that big umbrella of yours, have you not? It is here. Well, I'll borrow that, if I may. Certainly, but what a wretched weapon, if there is danger. Nothing serious, my dear Watson, or I should certainly ask for your assistance. But I'll take the umbrella. At present, I am only awaiting the return of our colleagues from Tunbridge Wells, where they are at present engaged in trying to find a likely owner to the bicycle. It was nightfall before Inspector MacDonald and White Mason came back from their expedition, and they arrived exultant, reporting a great advance in our investigation. "'Man, I'll admit that I had my doubts if there was ever an outsider,' said MacDonald. "'But that's all past now. "'We've had the bicycle identified, and we have a description of our man. "'So that's a long step on our journey.' "'It sounds to me like the beginning of the end,' said Holmes. "'I'm sure I congratulate you both with all my heart.' Well, I started from the fact that Mr. Douglas had seemed disturbed since the day before, when he had been at Tunbridge Wells. It was at Tunbridge Wells, then, that he had become conscious of some danger. It was clear, therefore, that if a man had come over with a bicycle, it was from Tunbridge Wells that he might be expected to have come. We took the bicycle over with us and showed it at the hotels. It was identified at once by the manager of the Eagle Commercial as belonging to a man named Hargrave, who had taken a room there two days before. This bicycle and a small valise were his whole belongings. He had registered his name as coming from London, but had given no address. The valise was London-made, and the contents were British, but the man himself was undoubtedly an American. "'Well, well,' said Holmes gleefully. "'You have indeed done some solid work "'while I have been sitting spinning theories with my friend.' 
It's a lesson in being practical, Mr. Mack. Aye, it's just that, Mr. Holmes, said the inspector with satisfaction. But this may all fit in with your theories, I remarked. That may or may not be. But let us hear the end, Mr. Mack. Was there nothing to identify this man? So little that it was evident that he had carefully guarded himself against identification. There were no papers or letters, and no marking upon the clothes. A cycle map of the county lay on his bedroom table. He had left the hotel after breakfast yesterday morning on his bicycle, and no more was heard of him until our inquiries. "'That's what puzzles me, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason. "'If the fellow did not want the hue and cry raised over him, "'one would imagine that he would have returned "'and remained at the hotel as an inoffensive tourist. "'As it is, he must know that he will be reported to the police "'by the hotel manager, "'and that his disappearance will be connected with the murder. "'So one would imagine. "'Still, has he been justified of his wisdom up to date, at any rate?' since he has not been taken. But his description, what of that? MacDonald referred to his notebook. Here we have it so far as they could give it. They don't seem to have taken any very particular stock of him, but still the porter, the clerk, and the chambermaid are all agreed that this about covers the points. He was a man about five foot nine in height, fifty or so years of age, his hair slightly grizzled, a grayish mustache, a curved nose, and a face which all of them described as fierce and forbidding. "'Well, bar the expression, that might almost be a description of Douglas himself,' said Holmes. "'He is just over fifty, with grizzled hair and mustache, and about the same height. Did you get anything else?' "'He was dressed in a heavy gray suit with a reefer jacket, and he wore a short yellow overcoat and a soft cap. "'What about the shotgun?' It is less than two feet long. It could very well have fitted into his valise. He could have carried it inside his overcoat without difficulty. And how do you consider that this bears upon the general case? Well, Mr. Holmes, said MacDonald, when we've got our man, and you may be sure that I had his description on the wires within five minutes of hearing it, we shall be better able to judge. But even as it stands, we have surely gone a long way. We know that an American, calling himself Hargrave, came to Tunbridge Wells two days ago with bicycle and valise. And the latter was a sawed-off shotgun. So he came with the deliberate purpose of crime. Yesterday morning, he set off for this place on his bicycle, with his gun concealed in his overcoat. No one saw him arrive, so far as we can learn. But he need not pass through the village to reach the park gates. And there are many cyclists upon the road. Presumably, he at once concealed his cycle among the laurels where it was found, and possibly lurked there himself, with his eye on the house, waiting for Mr. Douglas to come out. The shotgun is a strange weapon to use inside a house, but he had intended to use it outside, and there it has very obvious advantages, as it would be impossible to miss with it, and the sound of shots is so common in an English sporting neighborhood that no particular notice would be taken. "'That is all very clear,' said Holmes. "'Well, Mr. Douglas did not appear. "'What was he to do next? "'He left his bicycle and approached the house in the twilight. "'He found the bridge down and no one about. "'He took his chance 
intending, no doubt, to make some excuse if he met anyone. He met no one. He slipped into the first room that he saw and concealed himself behind the curtain. Thence he could see the drawbridge go up, and he knew that his only escape was through the moat. He waited until quarter-past eleven, when Mr. Douglas, upon his usual nightly round, came into the room. He shot him and escaped, as arranged. He was aware that the bicycle would be described by the hotel people and be a clue against him, so he left it there and made his way by some other means to London or to some safe hiding place, which had already been arranged. How is that, Mr. Holmes? Well, Mr. Mack, it is very good and very clear so far as it goes. That is your end of the story. My end is that the crime was committed half an hour earlier than reported, that Mrs. Douglas and Barker are both in a conspiracy to conceal something, that they aided the murderer's escape, or at least that they reached the room before he escaped, and that they fabricated evidence of his escape through the window, whereas, in all probability, they had themselves let him go by lowering the bridge. That's my reading of the first half. The two detectives shook their heads. Well, Mr. Holmes, if this is true, we only tumble out one mystery into another, said the London inspector. And in some ways a worse one, added White Mason. The lady has never been an American all her life. What possible connection could she have with an American assassin who would cause her to shelter him? I freely admit the difficulties, said Holmes. I propose to make a little investigation of my own tonight, and it is just possible that it may contribute something to the common cause. Can we help you, Mr. Holmes? No, no. Darkness and Dr. Watson's umbrella. My wants are simple. And Ames, the faithful Ames, no doubt he will stretch a point for me. All my lines of thought lead me back invariably to the one basic question. Why should an athletic man develop his frame upon so unnatural an instrument as a single dumbbell? It was late that night when Holmes returned from his solitary excursion. We slept in a double-bedded room, which was the best that the little country inn could do for us. I was already asleep when I was partly awakened by his entrance. Well, Holmes, I murmured, have you found anything out? He stood beside me in silence his candle in his hand. Then the tall, lean figure inclined towards me. I say, Watson, he whispered, would you be afraid to sleep in the same room with a lunatic, a man with a softening of the brain, an idiot whose mind has lost its grip? Not in the least, I answered in astonishment. Ah, that's lucky, he said, and not another word would he utter that night. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.